talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me Hello, and welcome once again to More Like the Worst Wing, the podcast where here in 2019, we take a look at Aaron Sorkin's seminal television classic, The West Wing, with a bit more of a leftist, socialist perspective and critique. I am Stu. And I am Dave. And today we will be tackling episode four of season three. It's called On the Day Before. And there's, again, just a shitload of things happening in this episode. But none of them are particularly important. Surprise! <laughs> As a recurring theme, many things happen on screen within the minutes of the episode, and yet so few have consequences. So the the first running plot point is that it's a continuation from the last episode where yes. Bartlett actually goes through the mechanics of vetoing the House bill to repeal the estate tax. Uh, which is helpfully entitled the Death Tax... Elimination Act uh, in a nice, you know, rhetorical flair by the Republican Party. So this scene, it's the cold open, basically, is the the ritual of a bill being physically brought from the house, like the, the office building of the house. Of the clerk. Over, yep. Yeah, the clerk of the house. Excuse mm-hmm. me. Um, over to the White House, and there's just, like, it is, it's set up like it's a fucking military funeral. Like, it is so <laughs> well, serious. And not only that, but, like, you know, the the guy sending it is, is has big, new-at-the-job energy, which uh, I also have currently, uh, <laughs> where he's like, oh, it's my second week, what if I fuck it up? Oh, I'm gonna meet the president, what if I pee my pants? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just... It's a lot of fawning over, like I wrote this down, like it's just, a, it's a mechanistic and bureaucratic, like, procedure. Right. You know. But at the same time, we also see, like, the boredom of the White House itself while they're, like, literally <laughs> yeah. just waiting for the bill. They're like, so what do we talk about, huh? It's still not here yet. <laughs> like, it, it's all very banal in the actual yes, that, that's a great, execution. That's a great word. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so... The, this weaves into but the this, other... This takes us right into the episode proper where... Uh, so they're having this big state dinner for question mark reasons? Yeah, I don't <laughs> understand. They never explain. It's like... I, it is, It's a state dinner, but it's only... Right, it's only legislators from the U.S. Yeah, like is it literally a state dinner? Like, let us get all the governors of the states together. <laughs> yeah. I guess you know it's so weird. It's just a conceit to have them dress up specifically. I guess for CJ's plotline. Um, <laughs> So that, you know, she has to change out of her ball gown when reporting the terrible, awful news that interrupts this episode. I almost want to call it a plot twist, the way it comes out of, like, like nowhere in the 20-minute 20, 20 mark. To be fair, this sort of thing would come out of nowhere, which is uh, our second major plot line, which is a bombing happens in Israel. Um, and unfortunately, in the blast amongst the others killed are two Americans. And they think they might have been targeted specifically. So this is our other big thing going on besides the dinner and the uh, vote uh, around the veto of the estate bill, uh, which is our two main things going on. Yeah. So we learn halfway through the episode that there's been a bombing in Tel Aviv. Uh, We get Nancy McNally back on screen. Always great. Mm -hmm. Um and she, you know, they go down like the, the military intelligence side, like the back door 
contact between Israel and the the PLO at this point. Holy shit! Right, they're trying um, to figure figure out who's claiming responsibility, who's actually responsible, that kind of thing. Yeah, and so the details come out through the course of the episode. Yes, the CJ plot line sort of it it resonates with last episode's thing on her getting back on the horse. Uh, yeah, um, I think that's definitely what they're going for. Is more like her showing that she's still in control. That she's like getting, get wrangling this all the duties of her job a little bit better, a little bit more thoroughly, uh, and this is to show that uh, the way she easily owns like this gossip reporter uh, and puts <laughs> and puts her in her place. Well, so we should we should break this out now because it's not really oh, okay. worth remarking on <laughs> later because it's like so there's this this irritating reporter who kind of asks CJ a couple snarky questions when she refuses. Well, frankly, she cites chapter and verse of the law at her to be like I actually can't reveal information about this bombing because there's National a federal security. statute yeah. that that prohibits me from and the doing private, so the privacy act of 1974 is what and, she and this, yeah. and this reporter woman then goes on TV and like editorializes to be basically bitchy at CJ and then right. so CJ comes and, back and mentions that she changed her dress and then it basically <laughs> says like maybe she's too busy with fashion to know how her job works like we're just real <laughs> shitty stuff <laughs> it's played up as as it's extreme yeah. and like it is clear that it's going to be like we are setting CJ up to knock this one down right here she is so, so far beyond the pale <laughs> like yeah and in the end, like, CJ comes back and just owns her on some technicality to do with the fucking veto process. Yeah, and, to make her look stupid in front of all the other reporters, basically. Yeah, and, like, okay, cool, but they spend a lot of screen time yeah. devoted to this, basically, thing where it's, you know, okay, fine. We're, we're getting it that CJ is, is back in the saddle. It's Yeah, whatever. it's weird to give her two wins back-to-back like this. Um, especially this one is even more minor than the last one, uh, which felt major at least because at least that episode focused on it. Uh, whereas this one, it was such a minor little thing. Like the first question she asks is like, CJ, who are you wearing? You know, like, (laughs) yes. And my wife notes that Diane Cook is not a real designer. Oh, that's Um, funny. (laughs) So see, could have fooled me. (laughs) Well, and this will, will, will actually sort of tangentially I want to talk about this later but once CJ basically like goes through all this press conference stuff the other serious thing revolving around this dinner where she's changing in and out of her gown or whatever is that Josh has a meeting with yes I was just going to get to this fucking Governor Jack of Indiana this is is Buckland we finally meet the the Buckland that was discussed so heavily last episode uh, who went uh, courtside with Campos uh, and brought him to Indiana to try to lure him away. Uh, so yeah, we finally meet the Buckland, the primary challenger. Uh, and boy, is he having a fun messing with the White House. <laughs> Man, it kind of rules, and we'll, again, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more lately. So Josh and Buckland have a behind-closed-doors meeting that basically Donna continues to interrupt, which sets up a very minor point where Josh and Donna are gradually coming to the reveal that Donna went on several uh, social calls, at dates least, with at least, Callie. At least one too many. We'll put it that way. <laughs> exactly. So at the end of the episode, she sort of bears her soul to Josh, having been acting like as his right hand 
throughout this right. very tense meeting with Jack. And so there is a mechanic towards the end of the episode where it's like, oh my gosh, like my, my confidant has betrayed me and she, she's not who I thought it was coming from Josh. And it's just like, uh, 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 okay. Sure. Fine. This sure. is technically a betrayal in the most minor of senses. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then there's like kind of a, quintessential West Wing roundup at the end where the president has to call the parents of dead Americans. Right. And they're sitting there in the Oval being like, oh man, you know, this is just part of the job. It's so hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. Yeah, that mostly wraps wraps it up. Um, I did not care for this one. I'm just going to get that out there right now. It was boring it's, it feels very standard and formulaic. There's no... I'm not saying I need a gimmick every single episode, but there's just... There's nothing. It just feels very like, okay, we got a domestic thing, we got a dinner, we got a foreign powers thing. Uh, we checkmarked all the boxes for this West Wing episode. Good work, everyone. Wrap it up. It's like, write a couple jokes in there, and we're out. Oh, my God. Oh, speaking of jokes, uh, out of nowhere... Oh, so Charlie has a running gag throughout the episode where everyone's giving him shit about, like, whether or not to take immunity for this MS testimonial, whatever. But at one point, CJ mentions she's changing out of her bowel gown, and the exchange between her and Charlie goes like this. CJ says, like, all right, I'm going to change my clothes. And Charlie goes, okay, I'll watch. And CJ goes, wait, what? What the fuck? And he goes, no, I'm kidding. And I'm like, that's... I, that's not... Yeah. That's not, A, how their dynamic works, and B, it's not funny. Like, the, the joke is just, haha, I did a sexism. Nope, but I didn't really. Well, and, like, <laughs> CJ's writing and scripting in this is completely incongruous and sort of out of character for yeah. her. Like she spends a lot of time in advance of the dinner just sort of, like, hand-wringing over who she's going to be sitting next to, and it is a... To be, it's a Nobel Prize winner for chemistry, and it is just. And I'm, I'm actually going to go off on this now in this go segment ahead. because yeah. basically, her entire arc swings wildly because the thing with the Nobel Prize winner is deeply anti-intellectual because she's like worrying she, the fucking press secretary to the president of the fucking United States, is making jokes about like, well, she- I should. Brush up on my periodic table. Right. Because... Uh, like, what in the world? <laughs> like, because did you know that the symbol for table salt is N-A-C-L? It means sodium chloride. It's like, what? I... Yeah. Everybody who went to high school in this country knows that. And trading on that for kind of kicks and gags is... It seems very... It's I mean, weird. It, it's... It's, it's very weird. It's it's definitely incongruous for CJ because usually she's the she is our um frankly as a character she's been like our north star right for a lot of these episodes. It's it doesn't it's just for a cheap joke of like oh I'm nervous about the dinner or something and it's like used up and it's I don't know it's just so stupid the idea that like oh it's a chemistry winner of the Nobel chemistry prize therefore I can only talk to them about chemistry and nothing else (laughs) you know how how about you just be a normal person yeah like as as Toby puts it like do you know his name and like how old he is then he's gonna be happy he's gonna be thrilled that you knew like two facts about him 
you know, like any normal person would be. And then it draws that contrast between, like, her just really just anxiously poring over these just super basic details with then she goes forward and owns this reporter on live TV with esoteric like technicalities based on US code. Right. It's like those two sort of perspectives are fundamentally at odds, you guys. It's, you can't be like yeah. deeply invested in the, the periodic table of elements being sodium chloride being salt and then being like, well, I can fucking cite you chapter and verse off the top of my head Yeah, about, guess, like, legal strictures. I guess we're meant to think, like, that's her wheelhouse and chemistry is, like, her weakness or something. Like, oh, but I never really got, you know, I, I feel like that's what she was trying to be, like, I'm so bad at chemistry in high school and therefore I could never talk to a chemist. Like, but it's just, uh, it's so stupid. Yeah, All right. and and using her in that regard is, I mean, frankly, I'm not that deeply invested in the show as a whole, but it feels a little like a little bit of a betrayal because like so far CJ gets the, the capital G good politics of the show, frankly. And now right. she's like, okay, so, so now she's just a gimmick for this episode, which is why I didn't really like it. Okay. Uh, all right. And that mostly breaks down this episode. Let's take a quick break and then we'll uh, hop into discussing the issues. So the biggest political facet of this episode is obviously the international politics founded on a very fundamentally American perspective of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Yes. Hooray, everybody's favorite. Um, I mean, it really doesn't dig in on any specifics. Not at all, really. Really, but the framing of it we discussed was very fundamentally Zionist. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of weird to see the, just sort of like the quintessential American perspective on everything just writ large and up there on the big screen. Yeah. Um, and this is, it's also like right post 9-11, so it feels like there's a lot of uh, framing of this uh, b- behind the ideas of, oh, a terrorism was done to Americans and therefore we must respond harshly. Um, yeah. You know, the, the thing that really catalyzes the characters reactions is like you say, this, the specificity of it being, Oh, it was Americans and targeted that were targeted, targeted yeah. at America is the real thing that kind of sets them off. Um, if these two kids had just been killed accidentally, I guess the response would have not been so harsh. Uh, okay, so also, I I forget, have we already had the uh, Camp David peace talks in this in the West Wing, or is that later on? Later on. Okay. I don't so think they, we've seen it yet. Okay, yeah, okay. Uh, for some reason, it felt like they were already referencing the fact that, like, they're already at peace, uh, like, officially. 
because uh, they keep talking about breaking a ceasefire, but they must be just talking about a temporary ceasefire or something like that. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's like, I guess it's understood that there's there's tension, of course. That but it's constantly no, in this Cold War yeah. sort of state. Okay. Yeah, and so, I mean, again, they don't really get into they much really of the specifics, <laughs> but the... But there is just sort of the, this, like, the the presence of C four. I don't understand why that was such a tip. Like it's my understanding that you could probably get C four in any country these days uh, if you had the right kind of connections. But their their understanding is that the presence of C four in the explosion seems to link it intrinsically to like Iran or Jordan or Lebanon or one of these like you know quote unquote axis of evil sort of Arab countries. That we yes, were very I think suspicious the, of. I think the implication is that it is a the the military grade explosive okay. implies that it is a state actor. Got it. So as opposed to just uh, some independent who home home grew a bomb. Yeah, and gotcha. you know they 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 bring it up later where it's like, oh, of course it's the the Palestine Freedom Front, and I just <laughs> <laughs> I was just really having fucking Life of Brian. Yeah, the Judeans. Yeah. <laughs> the Judeans people front. Yeah. Yes, it's definitely the people of Judea for freedom. No, not we're not that anymore. <laughs> but and and the the sort of like the default is that to and to be fair, they don't make a value judgment of the inevitable Israeli response. Right. And honestly, they sort of say we are worried because the Israelis are about to go fucking ham. Right. Like yeah. on the PLO with their their goddamn F-14s. It's, fu- it's and funny their how Apache they, attack helicopters. They can call out imperialism when another country's doing it, uh, but not, but are conveniently blinded to that fact whenever they have to do it. Well, and that's like the 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 Nancy McNally line of like it's always a training exercise. Right, yeah, <laughs> like that's what we call it every time we end up doing this shit. Exactly. That's, like, we're, that comes from experience. Yeah. You guys are taking a page right out of the old book here. Yeah. Like, now it's now it's the bomb pours in the Middle East edition instead of bomb pours in Central America edition or whatever. Right. You know we have a lot of versions of it. Don't worry. We've got every <laughs> every scenario covered. And so it's it's just like it the the portrayal of the conflict in popular media twenty years ago, right? And I then would it, love and, well, and it ends with them like tracking down the guy who they think you know supplied the C four and planned the mission and whatnot, uh, and they get him. You know they they've got they pull him into custody and like and Leo and Nancy get to have a big like celebration moment and Leo's like now go see if there's more food left from that dinner because we we done a good foreign policy tonight. <laughs> yeah, and it it all wraps up neatly in a bow because they have a convenient scapegoat in a in a what I guess you call like a great man frame. It's exactly, like, we, we got Osama. Except in exactly. this context, it's Ab, uh, the Abdul Majid or something. Right, is some, name. some lower lower man meant to be a sort of stand-in for some, you know, deck of 52 kind of guy that, <laughs> yeah. that we fucking got. Yeah, and so it gives them a convenient dodge to not even, and frankly, I mean, God, I can only imagine 20 years ago, especially at the height of post-9-11, like... Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, this is, this is just fucking fraught. To an American audience, so you know they they take the convenient out, but it's still just like 
listening to people talk about it in, in this framing is just embarrassing. Let's be clear. Death to America, death to Israel. That's all I want to say about this. <laughs> Inshallah. Let's, <laughs> all right, uh, so let's take, let's another, take break. another break. Now that I'm all head up <laughs> and we'll talk about something else. How much cash could go till all and all My skin is black. My star is red. Coming round the outside, which one of us finna die tonight? Is we finna fight over crumbs to buy or make a whole motherfucking world ignite? Everybody throw them bows right upside your partner's nose. By now, you've got bloody clothes, crabs in a barrel, so the story goes. Think of all their savage acts, grabbing scratch from average cats, bureaucrats with strings attached, walk in place like a match. Two by two, promenade, from a B1 bomber Okay, and so the other main non-foreign policy uh, plot of this episode is after the veto of the bill in the cold open, the Republicans immediately start moving to schedule a vote to override the veto, um, which all you trivia buffs out there know requires a two-thirds uh, majority of the House and Senate to override the presidential veto. At the time, the Democrats and the White House were fairly confident that the Republicans did not have enough votes, which would be, I believe, 280 is how many they need in the House. Um, but now, uh, panic is ensuing as it looks like they might have the votes. And so Sam, specifically, has been, like, given the the haggard look by the makeup <laughs> yep, people. He certainly where, has. Oh, where, yeah, okay, you noticed <laughs> yep, it, too. Yep, I did. And, then, and so he's on, like, Red Alert 5, and he's running around screaming at people, like, get a new whip count, and, to, and Toby's like, Ginger, get an open line to the whip, and, and you know, they're Set they're up a war room, that, and... Right, batting the hatches, they're you know they're going full full on panic mode here as they realize, oh shit, we might be screwed on this vote. So they start reaching out for people uh, to be like, okay, what do you need to get your vote back on our side so that we don't get the veto overwritten? Uh, and this is when a couple of congressmen come out of the woodwork and start demanding things. Um, as, as the one Democratic one who approaches them puts it, uh, I feel I'm in a very strong negotiating position right now. Uh, so this is basically them taking their moment of leverage where they realize they're the swing vote on this thing uh, and trying to extract maximum uh, r- uh, benefit from the Democrats on like a uh, politics agenda. Specifically, what this guy wants is grazing fees being reduced <sighs> for farmers. It's it's sort of this melange of like Phil Bredesen because I think this guy's actually from Tennessee, like Bredesen level right wing. He says wing, he's a west a western state. like right wing Democrat, like yeah. priorities. Yeah. I guess. Yeah, he's like a Wyoming or a Montana Democrat or something like that, and he's basically saying like, "You East Coast liberals, fucking ignore all of us in in farmer country. You call us flyover country. Well, now and now it's flyover country's turn, and I've got you over a barrel, and you're gonna give me uh, less antibiotics and raw milk and 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 more subsidies for cattle and bum 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 and, and uh, like he just gives a big list of demands for." dumb pork barrel stuff he wants for his state essentially well and so to be fair this is there's just an it's all good like you know well not that good like the raw milk thing is stupid but you know the the idea of yes we should give help where you know a a lot of people need help farm subsidies is kind of a i I don't want to get into it too much it's 
it's sort of complicated. I don't know if they're ultimately good or bad net net overall. I think personally, us paying farmers to throw away food seems really stupid. Uh, Psst, but the problem is capitalism. Yeah, I guess that's really what this all boils down to, where everyone tells you, "Oh, it's too complicated." Just, uh, that's neoliberalism mar- mar- doing its job. Market forces make it impossible to farm sustainably slash yeah. profitably. So cool. Uh, food food shouldn't cost money, in my opinion. Like that's really where I come down to things. It's bizarre that we charge for like basic staple food. You know, it's one thing if you're buying like you know uh, Cheez Its or what have you, but it feels like just basic ass food should be free. Also, uh, like that's my radical stance. <laughs> the, the carbon externalities of farming have essentially been, and frankly, of calorie distribution at large, have been largely hand waved. So it's like, yeah, right. like your your grain prices fluctuate, and you can sell them to different places. But it's like, just ignore anything to do with oil inputs like your entire chemical basis for modern farming yeah yeah just you know and stick all that food on a big tanker that's you know polluting the earth at (laughs) an incredible rate and ship it overseas uh so okay so meanwhile they've got all that going on so ultimately the white house's solution to this is okay. We we keep offering this this farm asshole more and more to get him on board, and then they go to Leo and they're like, Leo, we keep offering this guy like everything, and he's not fucking biting, and he's got us over a barrel. What do we do, Leo? And uh, I don't know why they became Seinfeld all of a sudden, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but and then Leo's like, all right, fuck it. Here's here's what we do. Or is it Sam? Sam who comes to the initial uh, idea, where Sam's like, okay. All this stuff that he wants, this farming stuff, doesn't that sound like stuff a farming Republican <laughs> would like? And they and they all get instantly hard at the idea of sweet, sweet bipartisanship and uh, sweet, sweet compromising with the Republicans. <laughs> it's, so, it's so great to see it in action because it's like they, they come to the conclusion, then they're like, oh, yeah, bipartisan rules, not like. There is literally no difference between Democrats and Republicans. Oh, my God. And, like, Sam even says, like, and CJ will get to brag about how bipartisan we're being. And, uh, it's just, uh, and it's all just to get a bigger margin on the vote that they would have won anyway if they had just worked with only the Democrats and not chosen to work with Republicans. their, Their solution ends up being, fuck this Tennessee or Western state guy, whatever, we're actually just going to take this offer to the Republican guy who, instead of controlling four votes in the House, controls seven. So let's be clear. Right. They needed, like, maybe four to win. So yeah. the compromise and giving shit away to the Republican Party is literally just to run up the score. And, okay, and not only that, so when they bring it to that guy, he goes, I actually don't want any yeah. of that. Here's, here's what I want. I want you to run a shitty suck dem against me so that I can kick his ass and be insured re-election because my district is vulnerable next election season. And they give it to him. Uh. They, say, they say, okay, no problem. We'll run a shitty candidate and you can basically have a free chance at that seat again. Like, they're giving up one of their own potential paths to power in controlling the House for this dumb, dumb, marginal, literally a marginal victory where all they're doing is improving their margin on their victory. And 
like they're getting him to vote for them once in exchange for guaranteeing his seat for how many other for votes? Next two, for the next two years. And, and every single oh vote God. thereafter. It is just like the most... It's the most West Wing. It is the most it's, West Wing thing in the world. The idea of the reasonable Republican that you can come to a nice bipartisan compromise with and uh, and get a minor goal accomplished in exchange for massive pain down the road. Uh, and speaking of, like sort of the wrap-up of the this this to us, to the audience, is sort of... it's it, The subtext is that the administration is in a weak position initially. Like we're, we're right. hoarding our political because of capital. MS. Right. As because of MS and because they're running a reelection campaign and all this kind of thing, the white house is weak right now, which is why they got this death tax thing through originally. That was the whole initial kerfuffle back when, you know, they canceled the meeting. They're like, Oh God, they know we're weak. They're just going to push this repeal of the estate tax through, which they did. Uh, but so in the end, they do over uh, manage to secure the votes with their dumb compromise. Uh, they ensure that Republican wins his next election. Great job, everyone. Uh, let's talk about Governor Pushup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so the the continuation of the theme of the White House being weak is that we have a behind closed doors meeting with Josh and this guy who was mentioned last episode who brought the yes. union leader compost to Indiana to watch a bullshit basketball game and basically <laughs> signaled that he was courting influence and like these organizers to help promote his primary challenge to Bartlett in the next presidential election. Yes. Um, the actor playing Buckland, I'm trying, I'm looking him up real quick. Kevin Teague, 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 T-I-G-H-E, Kevin Ty. Yeah. It's like Colonel like Ty Colonel from exactly. I should have I should have known <laughs> right away. Uh, he's apparently known for a recurring role on Lost, uh, where he, uh, I think he was Terry O'Quinn's dad, uh, Jack, uh, Locke's dad. Anywho, uh, he's do he does great work, and I just I love the basically the actor is trolling Josh Lyman. The entire time, uh, and it, and it's delightful, uh, where he just he just kind of realizes like the awkward and situation Josh is in, and he's just kind of reveling in it uh, the entire night in in a, in a really great way. Yeah, uh, I mean, go ahead. And it's it's really like they they start off sort of sniff around each other, and Josh has right. This they're great interaction. They're dancing around it, which is good. Well, and yeah, he has this ahead. great interaction with his the two staffers of the governor. Where they just, yeah. oh my god, they're like talking about pro-business pragmatists and they're just like, oh, it's the worst. And then, so thank god, yeah. he kicks them the fuck out and is like, Josh doesn't want to talk about as childhood asthma rates all this bull dumb bullshit yeah <laughs> he's like let's let's cut to the meat of what we're what we're here to talk about and josh is just like finally comes out and admits it. he's like we fucking hate how goddamn healthy you are <laughs> and, and the buckler guy just breaks into a giant grin <laughs> and he's just like oh yeah and he's like uh, fucking we got president ms over here who's gonna have to fucking campaign in an oxygen tent and every time they cut to you you're fucking throwing the ball around with your goddamn kids and and Buckland's like you want to see me do a push up son? 
It's like, I'm playing football in the Turkey Bowl at the annual family roundup at Thanksgiving. I'm running the New York Marathon. Like, yeah. What's funny is he's not even in that great of shape. Like, you know, like, he's in fine shape for an older gentleman, I guess. But, like, he's not that healthy. He's not, you know, he's not Obama healthy. Like, yeah. And so they, they make it clear. physical fitness. They make it clear that it's, like... They're worried about his virility, and the thing I wrote down <laughs> was that, look out, because Jack Buckland's going to be even more dad for America than yes. Bartlett is. He is channeling major dad energy. <laughs> in, in like, yeah, like, this is the dad who throws the football to you, you know, whereas the Bartlett dad is the dad who's just in the study, you know, rereading his books. Yeah. Uh, and we know what kind of man America would vote for. They're going to vote for the football-throwing dad. And so Josh eventually just sort of, like, like buys him off. Essentially, yeah. Uh, basically gets him to... To, well, and then, so at first he scares him with all this polling data that apparently they commissioned for Buckland <laughs> just to scare him. Because as as Josh points out, Buckland himself could not afford to do out-of-state polling uh, because he's just some governor from, from nowhere with essentially no shot. He's basically polling at, like, sub-Beto levels of where, where Beto's polling right now. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Josh brings up that, like, you know, when Bartlett ran, he wasn't challenging an incumbent, and no one ever challenges an incumbent by running to their right uh, when it's a Democrat, apparently. And you know, to be fair, the, the idea of an incumbent getting challenged is extremely rare uh, or, you know, a serious challenge. However, I guess the MS is meant to imply, like, extraordinary circumstances where this sort of thing could be more plausible. Well, sure, and it's, again, it's just leveraging the diagnosis in service of this theme that the administration is weak. And yes. there, there are going to be opportunists coming out of the woodwork to take advantage yes. of it. Yeah, and I guess that's that's basically what... I guess the theme of this particular episode is kind of going for in general, I guess... And uh, like I said, I really like the performance here by by Mr. Ty, and uh, uh, just <laughs> the way he says like you want to have that drink now <laughs> to Josh is just it's so just, like, good. Got this shitty dink grin on his face the entire <laughs> yeah. time. He, That's the perfect way to describe it. He's got a big old shitty well, grin. Like, and I'm sure he knows so amused. If, if he's you know a savvy enough operator, I'm sure he knows exactly what Josh is going to ask him about. Yes. Yeah, that's the, that's the implication, is that he knows entirely this whole situation, and he's playing it for maximum benefit for himself, essentially. Um, which he gets, uh, and they basically say, like, okay, yeah, we'll help you out with whatever you want in exchange for not running and doing a bunch of push-ups um, while we try to campaign. And then all of these sort of, the machinations wrap up in the end with Leo talking about, like, just fucking go out and do it, man. Just, like, you know get out there and he uses some God, yeah he's doing the, the Shia LaBeouf like thing. some obscure um, oh yeah yeah the reference. throw the elbow thing. like I said Sorkin never found a tortured sports metaphor that he didn't love so the thing he th says is like uh, some basketball player who is famous for playing clean you know oh you gotta go throw one elbow on one nationally televised game and then everyone will respect you and they'll, they'll leave you alone from then on so he's basically telling them to go throw an elbow. 
uh, except their version of throwing their elbow is is attacking their own party and punching left at it and telling them that we're gonna go go caucus with a Republican to to fuck you over. Like that's what they're throwing an elbow is 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 meeting with the Republican guy and and offering him the deal. Yeah, well, and of course, because the only the only compromise that is palatable within the West Wing's Overton window is to the right. Like you, right. you only they don't compromise with yeah. the. <sighs> so yeah, yeah, that that basically wraps up for this episode. Uh, let's come back and we'll do our final little wrap up. He's pulling me back to you From the very first time we loved From the very first time we talked The stroke of your fingers, the scent of you lingers My mind running wild with thoughts of your smile Oh, you gotta give me some You could give it all, but it's never enough, no So... Donna kind of has a very um, telling moment at towards the end of this episode where she says to Josh as he's coming in and out of this closed door meeting, he says, who says Congress can't get anything done while they're procedurally delaying this vote right. over and over and over again? So he, they keep coming to Josh for different procedural tricks to use and he's got like a fucking million of them filed away. Yeah. Uh, like, and call he's just the like, question. Do, do this, it'll buy 20 minutes. Yeah. And, like, and he's got a million of them. And it's like, gee, why? no wonder Congress can't get anything done. And, and she <laughs> says it out loud and it's yeah. like, yep. Pretty yeah. much. They, they, they have an easy cheat with Josh and Donna with the whole tying my tie scene, which is just the easiest cinematic narrative shorthand for, like, physical intimacy oh, man. that I've ever yeah. seen. Because, like, oh, they have to get their faces close together, and it's intimate, and her arms are around him, and it's just, like, uh, it's so cliche. <laughs> also, tying a bow tie isn't, ex- isn't that hard Oh, uh, this was pre-YouTube, so she can't, <laughs> she can't just pull true. up the YouTube video. Uh, it, it also, I, watched, I rewatched Spider-Man Homecoming, and that Aunt May pulls up how to tie a tie for Peter's Homecoming <laughs> tie, because neither of them know how to do it. I thought that was a cute moment. <laughs> the worst thing for me is that it just brings my class traitor cognitive dissonance to the fore. Oh, you know? Well, <laughs> yeah, all right. Well. You're like fourth against the wall. Don't worry. <laughs> I'm like right. I'm like eighth or ninth because like I I don't know. I know something like that too. <laughs> so this episode a lot didn't happen. Um, and frankly, yeah. that Donna line is like perfect. It's like who says they can't get anything done? Because surprise, they didn't. The show doesn't. Um, the next episode is entitled War Crimes. Um, which is a fucking great title, and it is referring to the eponymous war crimes of one Leo J. McGarry, uh, who is about to find out that all of those places he bombed back in Vietnam were not, in fact, clean military targets. Turns out Leo is just finding out this information just now in the fictional year of 2001, uh, and not back in the 70s. Gosh, who'd have thought... Uh, meanwhile, Donna's whole thing with Cliff Callie kind of blows up even more. 
um, as she admitted to Josh in this episode. We're going to get so, some of the consequences of that. And then we get the vice president coming back out of nowhere to talk at an anti-gun rally in Texas after a church shooting. So all of those topics and more will be discussed on our next episode of The Worst Wing. Uh, but thanks for listening. Uh, as always, you can reach us in the thread. Um, if you found us a different way, you can email us. Email the show at theworstwing69 at gmail.com. Nice. Nice. And uh, we will be back, uh, maybe not next week, because I'm going to be out of town uh, for work, but uh, shortly with another episode of The Worst Wing. Bye-bye. Send all the money you ask for, but don't ask me to come on 